0: Come, Lord Jesus. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to 1 Samuel 12. We're continuing on in our series here. If you're new or visiting at Midtown Baptist, this is our normal practice. We start at the beginning of a book and we preach all the way through. Uh, This is how God's authority is seen in His church, as His Word is proclaimed each and every part, the whole counsel of God. So. We're in the midst of working through 1st and 2nd Samuel. We'll be done, I don't know when. Maybe the Lord Jesus will come back before we finish, which would be just fine with me. We're in 1st Samuel chapter 12. You'll remember that Saul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, has just won a mighty victory for God's people. And now Samuel rises up again to address the nation. The people of Israel stand on the verge of the monarchy, but before it begins in earnest... Samuel has an urgent message for the people of God. So we're going to pick it up in verse 1 and see what it is that Samuel will press upon Israel and what it is that God will impress upon us. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray, And behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand." And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord, concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers." When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed him, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety." And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well." But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king." So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your King. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God given to us and for our good. Let's pray together now and ask God to grant us grace that we might hear His Word with humility, and faith. Let's pray. Father, we do humble ourselves now under Your Word. We know that this is how Your voice is known among us as the Scriptures declare to us the mind of God, the things of God, the truth of God, and that the Spirit comes and applies those things to our hearts so that Christ, Your Son, might be magnified in our midst. We pray, Father, that You would help us now to have the humility of faith to listen and to receive the Word implanted in us which is able to save our souls. I pray, God, that You would keep me from error. I pray that the things spoken this morning would be true and faithful and clear from the Scriptures, and that Your people, Father, would have discernment to know the truth from wrong and to hold fast, God, even as we trust that You will hold fast to us. We pray these things, Father, for Christ and for His glory. Amen. You can think of 1 Samuel chapter 12 like a bridge. On either side is a distinct era of Israel's history. On the one side, we have the era of the judges, men like Gideon and Samson. But on the other side, we have the era of the monarchy, where judges are replaced with kings, men like Saul and David and Solomon. What transitions Israel from one era to the next? This chapter, 1 Samuel 12. Samuel is the last in the line of the judges. And this speech is his last official act as a judge. He's going to continue to serve Israel as a prophet, but from this point forward, the nation will be led and protected by a king. So this chapter is taking us from one side to the other. It's like a bridge that spans the divide between judgeship and monarchy. But at the same time, we can also think of 1 Samuel 12 like a mirror. It's a bridge, but there's more here than bridging eras. This passage is also like a mirror. It reveals the people of God. So they see themselves as they truly are. What happens in these verses is a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. You'll remember that following the exodus from Egypt, God made a covenant with Israel at Sinai. And that covenant defined Israel's relationship to God. If they wanted to know how things were going between them and the Lord, just think about how they were doing in following the covenant. The covenant expressed what God would do, and the covenant stipulated what Israel must do. It defined their relationship. But here's the problem that gives rise to this chapter. Israel keeps breaking the covenant. God's people are unfaithful. They don't hold up their end of the agreement. They couldn't even make it for Moses getting down from the mountain before they broke it. And they're still breaking it. And so as the pages of history turn from one era to the next, Samuel holds up the mirror of God's Word so that the people can see their need and then point them to their only source of hope. Friends, is this not also what we need on a regular basis? Is this not also why we gather each and every Lord's Day? We come together to stand before the mirror of God's Word. And through the Word, God reveals the true state of our hearts. He shows us our need. He shows us our unfaithfulness. But He also shows us once more His mercy in Christ. You see, in that sense, this passage is also a bridge to us. What God did for Israel in this chapter, He aims to do now in us. His purposes don't change, friends. His purposes don't change. From the old, Covenant to the new, God is always proclaiming to us this one message of good news. When we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. But to truly treasure that good news, we must first see ourselves as we are, and that's where this passage begins. There are four truths to note in this chapter, and the first truth deals with the bad news. In verses 1-12, to we see the pattern that convicts us. The pattern that convicts us. If you imagine a courtroom, then you'll have a good idea of the setting for Samuel's speech. These opening verses are an indictment of Israel. This is a covenant lawsuit. And the charge is unfaithfulness. But Samuel doesn't simply announce The charge, he builds a case. He's a good prosecutor. He builds a case. He shows the people just how far they have strayed. Notice with me how Samuel does this. First of all, Samuel points out their rejection of God's provision. Look at verses 1 to 5. At first, this seems like little more than Samuel's self defense. He's on the way out, and as he goes, he wants to clear his name. And there is a sense in which Samuel defends his. Ministry here, but not merely to clear his name. Notice verse 3. Three times, Samuel points out that he has not taken anything unlawfully. I didn't take anybody's ox. I didn't take anybody's whatever else it was. I think it was a donkey. I didn't take any bribes. I didn't take anything. Now, do you remember chapter 8 when Samuel warned Israel against a king? Do you remember what he warned them the king would do? The king will take. It's the same word. So do you see the deeper reason for Samuel's defense? He's saying to the people, God had already given you a leader. He had already provided for you a leader. I didn't take anything from you. But now you've asked for a king, and that king is going to take and take and take. You see, Samuel's ministry was God's provision to the people of Israel. It was an evidence of God's goodness. It's always good when God raises up someone who will tell us the truth. But the people have rejected that provision in favor of something new. They've rejected God's provision. Samuel's case continues. In verses 6-11, through he highlights their disregard for God's faithfulness. They rejected His provision and now they have disregarded God's faithfulness. Now, I want you to notice the legal language At work here. Look at the phrase in verse 7 stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord. You could also say, stand still that I may confront you before the Lord. That's a summons, a call to appear before the bench of God's justice. So in his last act as a judge, Samuel calls the people to account. He's essentially saying, stand up straight because I'm about to bring the charge against you. And his primary piece of evidence is the faithfulness of God. Samuel goes back to the beginning of Israel's life as a nation and he traces this pattern in Israel's relationship to the Lord. The pattern goes like this. There's a crisis. The people cry out and God delivers him. Crisis, cry out, deliverance. That's the pattern. And every time, the Lord was faithful. He was faithful at the Exodus. Notice verse 8. The people were in crisis, enslaved in Egypt, so they cried out and God delivered them through Moses and Aaron. The Lord was faithful, but that wasn't the only time. God was also faithful throughout the period of the judges. Notice verses 9-11. to Here the pattern happens over and over. The people were in crisis, oppressed by their enemies, so they cried out and God brought deliverance through the judges. Again, the Lord was faithful. And astonishingly, the Lord did this even though His people forgot Him. Did you catch that at the beginning of verse 9? The people forgot God. Ah, what a dreadful statement that exposes the wickedness of our hearts. Israel forgot God. They forgot the God who turned the Nile into blood, who brought swarms of devouring locusts, who shrouded the land in darkness, who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, who parted the Red Sea into dry land, who brought bread from heaven and water from the rock. They forgot that God. Friends, that's a definition of sin in a nutshell. Sin is to disregard God and to live as though He were nothing. That's what Israel has done. Israel forgot God. And still, God remained faithful. From the Exodus on down through every single judge, Gideon, Deborah, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, Othniel, Ehud, every single time, when the people cried out, God answered them. Not once, did He leave them on their own. Not once did He pour out the destruction that they deserved. Every time they cried, God answered. He was faithful. You feel the weight of it? Now look at verse 12. So what makes verse 12 such a powerful indictment. Samuel's case has been established and now it's time for the verdict. Notice from verse 12 how inescapable the conviction is. The people in Samuel's day also faced a crisis. Nahash, the Ammonite, threatened them. But did they cry out to God? No. The pattern breaks. They didn't cry out. This time the people asked for a king. They cried for a king, even though God was their king. They too forgot God. You see, that's Samuel's burden at this point. This most recent crisis has laid bare their hearts. The pattern of their history has now been used to convict them of their unfaithfulness and their unbelief. It's a clear pattern, and it convicts the people of God. Now, this is not the end of Samuel's message to the people. But before we look at what else the prophet will say, I want to pause here and point out an important takeaway For us, this moment in Israel's history shows us the importance of reading the Bible the right way. Reading the Bible the right way. That might sound like a curious thing to say, so let me explain what I mean. We're hardwired to read passages like this and look down our noses at Israel we pick out all the reasons why they were wrong, and we dissect all the ways that they were unfaithful. And all the while, we do this as though we were any different. I remember a particular class period in seminary that confronted this tendency in my heart. I was taking a class on the Gospel of Mark, and we were studying one of those scenes where the religious leaders completely missed the point. That's like the whole book. One of those scenes, you know, where Jesus does an incredible miracle. Just something amazing, and the religious leaders are furious at Him. They want to kill Him. Do you remember those? So we're studying this passage, and our professor asked us, what stood out to us from the scene? What stands out to you, class? And so we, as a class, proceeded to rattle off all the ways the religious leaders were ignorant and hard-hearted. And this went on for a while until the professor stopped us and said, you're reading this passage from the winner's perspective. But that's not who you are. In passages like this, you're the loser. You're the person in need. And and when he said that, this light bulb went off in my mind and it changed the way that I read the Bible. I'm the self-righteous religious leader. I'm the boneheaded disciple. I'm the crippled man who can't even get himself to the water when it's stirred up. Friends, that's the same lesson here in 1 Samuel 12. I'm unfaithful Israel. Their pattern is my pattern. Their history is my history. So when I read of their unfaithfulness, I should respond not with condemnation, but with conviction myself. This is me. And that should lead me to gratitude for the faithfulness of God. You see, that's how the Bible works. It shows us what we're like first. Unfaithful, wayward, hard-hearted. So that we might finally see what God is like. That He's faithful, that He's persistent, that He's merciful. In fact, I'll contend with you that you won't even embrace the faithfulness of God as good news until you recognize that you're absolutely unfaithful. Why is that good? Unless you need it. Friends, I cannot emphasize this enough. This is how the Gospel becomes sweet to our taste and a delight to our souls when we recognize just how desperate we are apart from God. Jesus is not using hyperbole when He says, apart from Me, you can do nothing. So as we read this pattern that convicts Israel, let's put ourselves under that verdict as well. Not so that we're condemned, but so that we're exposed and then led to rejoice all the more in the faithfulness of God. That's the first truth we want to see. We want to see the pattern that convicts us. The prophet Samuel is not finished though with God's wayward people. I'm so glad that it doesn't end at verse 12. He keeps going, and in verse 13... He describes Israel's current situation. Notice what he writes. And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. So the people have gotten what they want. And we might expect that to be the end. They didn't want God's rule. So the Lord would be completely justified in just leaving them on their own. But that's not what happens. The Lord keeps coming. And in verses 14 and 15, we see our second truth. The Word that pursues us. The Word that pursues us. You'll notice in verses 14 and 15 that Samuel lays out for the people two ways to live. On the one hand, they can obey the Lord and experience His blessing. That's verse 14. Or, on the other hand, they can disobey the Lord and experience His judgment. That's verse 15. There are only two ways to live for the people of Israel. Those are the only paths before them obedience will lead to blessing disobedience will bring a curse now what should get our attention is that this alternative is not new these two ways to live samuel didn't make them up samuel's words echo moses from the end of deuteronomy do you remember do you remember how deuteronomy ends it's moses is giving his last speech to the people of israel and this is what he says see i have set before you today life and good death and evil If you obey the commandment of the Lord, then you shall live. But if your heart turns away, then you shall perish. So Moses presented the people with the same two ways to live. And that's the significance here in 1 Samuel 12. Samuel is not telling the people anything new. He's calling the people back to the covenant. He's calling the people back to God's Word. You see, even though they have strayed, even though they have forgotten God, God will not let up. He keeps pursuing them. He calls them to repent and turn again to the path of blessing, the path of obedience. He keeps coming after them with His Word. Friends, this is a clear picture of how God works in the lives of His people. He pursues us through His Word. He pursues us through His Word. This is why it's so important that we regularly take in the Scriptures both individually and corporately as a church body. It's so disheartening to me when I hear believers talk about reading the Bible merely as a spiritual discipline, or gathering with God's people as merely fulfilling our duty. That's such a dismal perspective on the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, we read the Bible not to meet some requirement, but because that's how God comes after us. Through His Word. We gather together as a church not to keep the doors open. We don't even own this place. We gather because we want to see God work among us. We want to bear one another's burdens and experience the blessing of the Spirit's gifts. That's why we come together because this is how God works. Through His Word. You know, we love to talk about God's faithfulness, and rightfully so. It's a magnificent truth. Magnificent. But we must also remember that God's faithfulness is not a thing that exists out there in a vacuum that we somehow stumble into. His faithfulness is revealed as His Spirit works through His Word in the life of His people. Do you want God to work in your life? Then open His Word. Do you want His faithfulness to keep after you and make you more like Christ? Then read His Word. Do you want the Lord to prepare you for the next hard season when life rocks you to the core and you can barely stand? Then meditate on His Word. Friends, it's not simply a book. The Bible is the vehicle of God's faithfulness. It's the way that He comes to us and works in us and pursues us and keeps us till the end. Every morning that you wake up bleary-eyed and open the Bible, that is a massive evidence of grace that God is persevering you to the end. It may not feel that way. But it is. It could be that you are here this morning and you are well aware of your unfaithfulness to God. And all of this talk of opening God's Word just feels like another layer of guilt or shame or something being pressed down. You've strayed. You're far off. And and you know it. If so, I want to encourage you that the first step is to open God's Word and in prayer ask the Spirit to lead you in the path of repentance. The fact that you're here today and God is opening His Word to you is an evidence of His kindness. It's an evidence of His grace. He's not turning His back on you. He doesn't care how far, how far you've gone. He wants you to turn back now. Open His Word and ask the Spirit to bring repentance. Open it today. You can't do anything about yesterday. And you're not even promised tomorrow. You just have today. So open His Word and read. Read. Ask the Spirit to do His work in your life. And if you don't know how to do that, then go to a brother or sister and ask for their help. That might sound frightening, and it's certainly not easy, but didn't didn't the Lord Jesus tell us that the road of discipleship is hard? So do the hard thing and ask a brother or sister for help. That's what discipleship is supposed to look like. God's people around God's Word helping each other repent of their sin and trust in the Gospel. That shouldn't be unusual. It's normal Christian life. Friends, I I pray we learn from Samuel's message here in verses 14 and 15. Whether you've strayed or whether you're walking faithfully with God, I pray we learn from this. The path to restored fellowship with God begins with His Word. Because it's through the Word that the faithful God keeps pursuing us to the end. So, the pattern that convicts us, the Word that pursues us. In verse 16, Samuel's address to Israel takes a turn. You probably heard it when we were reading. The prophet seems to anticipate an objection. And so to impress on the people the seriousness of the situation, He does something memorable. And it's from this memorable moment that we see our third truth. The judgment that humbles us. The judgment that humbles us. It's time for the wheat harvest in Israel, which means it's not time for a soaking thunderstorm. So Samuel uses the climate to his advantage. He calls upon the Lord to send thunder and rain. And in verse 18, the Lord answers. He brings a powerful storm and all the people tremble in fear. And understand, friends, this is a visible reminder not to ignore God's Word. Again, we have to think back to the book of Deuteronomy. By the way, the book of Deuteronomy is arguably the most important book in the Old Testament. Everything leads up to Deuteronomy and everything flows out of Deuteronomy. So if you're ever wondering, what's the significance of this? It's probably in Deuteronomy. There you go. So we've got to think back to the book of Deuteronomy. One of the curses for disobedience in Deuteronomy was the destruction of Israel's crops. Well, what happens here? A storm erupts that very likely destroys some, if not all, of Israel's wheat harvest. It's like the Lord is saying, don't doubt me. Watch this. And so he brings a foretaste of the curse to remind them not to doubt God's word. He will do exactly what he said he would do, even when it comes to judgment. Now, the question, of course, is why? What's the purpose for such an unusual storm? Well, it certainly reveals God's power, and it certainly reminds God's people not to take him lightly. But there's more to it than that. Look at verse 17. Samuel actually tells the people what the conclusion is they should draw. Look at what he says. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord and asking for yourselves a king. You see, the storm wasn't so much to confirm God's power, it was to confirm Israel's unfaithfulness. The storm is a divine megaphone shouting to the people, Repent! This is who you are. This is what you should get. You should get this curse. But I'm holding back, so repent. Repent before God's judgment arrives in full. It's a foretaste, a bitter appetizer that should drive the people back to God. Friends, this is the purpose for God's judgment in this life. Times have changed, covenant from old to new, but this is still the purpose for God's judgment in this life. God does not thunder simply to scare us. He he takes no pleasure in that kind of terror. God thunders to shake us with the reality of His judgment and then lead us to repentance. That's what He does. In fact, you see this purpose at work in the passage. Notice verse 19. What do the people do? They acknowledge their sin. And they ask for Samuel to intercede on their behalf. Now, we know the people are going to go astray again later, but that's not the point here. The point here is that the thunderstorm worked. The people were humbled by the storm. They confessed. And they sought mercy through the means God had provided. The Lord thundered in judgment to drive the people to Himself, and that's what happens. What about us here today? It could be you're here this morning and you are not a Christian. You're not sure what to make of a God who brings storms. Or you wonder why there has to be any sort of judgment at all. And I understand those questions. Those are actually really good questions to ask. But along with those questions... If you're not a Christian, I would urge you to consider that God's Word is pressing on you this inescapable truth. There is a day coming when we will all stand before God's final judgment. And when that day comes, there are no more questions to consider. There's only God to whom we must give an account. And sinners like us, like you and like me, sinners like us have no hope before that kind of holy God. None. But the good news of the Bible is that God not only thunders in judgment, but He also deals with the judgment Himself. Friends, this is the grace of the Gospel, that God the Son took on human flesh in Jesus Christ, and He stood between His people and the Holy God. He took the judgment. And for those who turn to Him in repentance and faith, that final day is no longer a day of judgment, but a day of salvation and joy and life everlasting. That's why the church prays, come Lord Jesus. So if you don't know Him this morning, friends, the Word of God is doing good to you right now and saying, this is what's coming. Trust Christ today. Don't delay. Don't delay. Turn to Christ. God's Word is urging you. Don't take my word for it. I'm just a man. Listen to the Word of God. God's Word is urging you. Come to Christ. There is a day coming when no more questions will be answered. Come to Christ, friend. Trust Him. Oh, how I pray God would give each of us ears to hear this message with faith, whether for the first time or again. May it be so. So that's the third truth. The judgment that humbles us. That brings us to verse 20. The people have asked for Samuel's help, and now Samuel assures them that he will continue in his ministry. And it's from Samuel's assurance to the people that we see our final truth. The grace that comforts us. The grace that comforts us. You can see from the start that Samuel intends to comfort the people. Notice the first words of verse 20. They're they're just strikingly out of place almost, just about face. Look, Look how it starts, verse 20. Do not be afraid. So he wants to comfort them. Do not be afraid. But then, Samuel essentially repeats the demands of the covenant. Notice verses The rest of verse 20 and verse 21. The people must serve God with all their heart, which is what the law required. Not just outward obedience, but heartfelt obedience. God doesn't care about rituals. He wants your hearts. And this heartfelt obedience requires that they turn from idols. Idols can't save. They're empty, powerless, worthless. No good. The people must remain devoted to the Lord. And then, to make sure the people don't miss this, Samuel repeats the demands again. Look at verses 23-25. to Samuel's not going anywhere, he says. But still, the people must obey. He repeats the covenant demands again. Disobedience will lead to exile. The only path forward for the people and their king is to obey God and serve Him faithfully. Now, if you think about it, so far, Samuel has not yet explained why the people shouldn't be afraid. He's just repeated the demands of the covenant. But aren't the people in this mess because they keep breaking those demands? Yes! That's the reason for God's thundering in judgment. So, how does repeating the demands remove the fear? Do you see see the problem? Samuel wants to comfort the people of God, but so far I don't see how this is comforting. We're disobedient. How is this comforting? Verse 22. Verse 22. Friends, what a treasure verse 22 should be to our souls. This is the foundation of our hope. This is the source of our comfort. Look at what Samuel says. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Brothers and sisters, that is a clear declaration of sovereign grace. Amen. This is the grace of God that saves His people and keeps His people entirely because He wants to. But to see how this is comforting, you've got, to, you've got to work with Samuel for a moment. You've got to think carefully. Samuel is actually making a profound point. But you've got to track with him for a few steps. So. Follow along with me as we try to track Samuel's argument, okay? What is God doing in this world? What is the purpose for all of God's actions? To bring glory to His own name. This is the reason why God created everything. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. This is the reason why God created humanity. Isaiah 43, bring my sons and daughters from afar, whom I created for what? My own glory. This is why God does everything that He does. He's working to show the world what He is worth. He's working to reveal His glory. And amazingly, God will not let His glory fail. He will not allow His name to be profaned forever. He is the infinite, almighty God, and He will receive the glory His name deserves. That's what God is doing in the world. Now, here's the connection with us. Where is... This is such good news. Where is God's name known today? Where do you see His name? It's bound to His people. It's bound to His people. When God called us to Himself, He set His name on us. Or to say it another way, God has tied His glory together with our salvation. So, why will God not forsake His unfaithful people? Because He will not let His glory fail. To forsake His people would mean that God forsook His own name. And He cannot do that. He would cease to be God if He did that. He will never do that. The Lord will be glorified, and therefore, He will never forsake those who are His. And that, friends, is the reason Samuel says, do not be afraid. That's the comfort he gives to God's people. Our destiny does not rest on our commitment or our, un, or our faithfulness. We are unfaithful. And even on our best days, we are prone to wander. Our destiny rests on God's commitment to Himself. His name is our hope. We are secure because God will not let His glory fail. He will hold us fast, for He cannot deny Himself. It's the same argument that Paul is making. Brothers and sisters, this is the encouragement I want us to go out with this morning. I had to resist the urge to only preach verse 22. By all means... Let's acknowledge our need for the Lord. Let's repent of our unfaithfulness. Let's confess our sin. And by all means, let's keep pursuing greater dependence on God through the Scriptures together in the life of the church. I pray we never grow weary in doing those good things. Amen? Amen. But at the end of the day, when we have done all that we can do, may we rest in this Gospel comfort that Samuel gives to the people of God. The Lord will not forsake us. Why? for His great name's sake. And so, the most fitting conclusion I can see for our time together comes from the New Testament, from the Apostle Peter in chapter 2 of his first epistle. Peter knew his Old Testament well, and even more, he knew the comfort of this grace very well. And in the second chapter of his first epistle, he tells us how we should now live together. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. May we take great comfort in God's grace that saves us and keeps us, and may that grace compel us to proclaim with every breath we have the excellencies of our faithful God. Amen? Let's pray.